I wonder if we could turn in our Bibles to the book of Genesis again, chapter 33, this time. And we'll read, read from verse 1 of the chapter, the book of Genesis, chapter 33, and beginning our reading at the first verse of the chapter And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau came, and with him four hundred men. And he divided the children unto Leah and unto Rachel and unto the two handmaids. And he put the handmaids and their children foremost, and Leah and her children after, and Rachel and Joseph hindermost. And he passed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. And Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children and said, Who are those with thee? And he said, The children which God hath graciously given thy servant. Then the handmaidens came near, they and their children, and they bowed themselves. And Leah also with her children came near and bowed themselves, And after came Joseph near and Rachel, and they bowed themselves. And he said, What meanest thou by all this drove which I met? And he said, These are to find grace in the sight of my Lord. And Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep keep thou that thou hast unto thyself. And Jacob said, Nay, I pray thee, if now I find grace in thy sight, Then receive my present at my hand, for therefore I have seen thy face, as though I had seen the face of God, and thou uh, thou wast pleased with me. Uh, Take, I pray thee, my blessing that is brought to thee, because God hath dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. And he urged him, and he took it. And he said, Let us take our journey, and let us go, I will go before thee. And he said unto him, My Lord knoweth that the children are tender, and the flocks and herds with young are with me. And if men should overdrive them one day, all the flock will die. Let my Lord, I pray thee, pass over before his servant, and I will lead on softly, according as the cattle that goeth before me, and the children be able to endure, until I come unto my Lord unto Seir. And Esau said, Let me now leave with thee some of the folk that are with me. And he said, What needeth it? Let me find grace in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way unto Seir. And Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built him an house and made booze for his cattle. Therefore the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came to Shalem, a city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. And he came from Paddan Aram and pitched his tent before the city. And he bought a parcel of a field where he had spread his tent at the hand of the children of Hamar, Shechem's father, for a hundred pieces of money. And he erected there an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. Amen. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious word to our hearts. Let's unite in a word of prayer and seek the face of God. 
Our loving and our gracious God, we continue before thee today. We do rejoice in God's mercies to our souls. We do thank thee for thy speaking voice. We are glad that we're able to come and gather at thy feet today. We pray that thou wouldst teach us, lead us, guide us, help us, and direct us as we seek to serve thee in these incoming days. For it's in Jesus' precious name that we'd ask these things. Amen. Amen. As we meet Jacob here in Genesis chapter 33, we find that he just passed over the four Jabbok. He had just um, had a great milestone in his life where God had come down and wrestled with him and he had uh, broken Jacob uh, and he had made Jacob humble. You remember how that God had touched the sinew in Jacob's thigh and so from that time on in his life he would walk with a limp and we read that or we find really that Jacob or God is teaching Jacob and God had saved Jacob at Bethel but now God is beginning to work and sanctify his servant and he's beginning to mold him into what he would have him to be but sanctification is not something that happens in a moment the same way salvation does. I know that there are those that believe that it does happen in a moment and that you can be entirely sanctified in a moment of time. But the Bible says in the book of Proverbs that the path of the just is as the shining light that shineth more and more onto the perfect day. And we should be coming more, be coming more and more like Christ day by day. Unfortunately, for many of us, it's taken a long time. You maybe would have thought that after the encounter with God at Peniel, that Jacob would have known that he was serving a mighty God, that God had met with him, God had appeared to him, that he had an encounter with God in his life, and that would have made a dramatic difference. It did make a difference, because we read how that Afterwards, Jacob prays. He had really been praying man before, but now he brings his need to the Lord at the throne of grace in prayer. God had made a difference in the life of Jacob, but we will find that there are other things that God needs to do in the life of his man. Peniel was a high spiritual watermark in the life of Jacob, but we find that God sends trials into his life to continue to make Jacob into what God wanted him to be. And we find here that God now is bringing Jacob right into a trial. Right after the encounter with God, he goes into a trial. And how often that is, how often it is when we get to the high spiritual mountaintop that we immediately face a trial. It's like Moses, who was on the Mount Sinai meeting with God and came down to find that the people were worshipping the golden calf. And we think of how the Lord was in the, uh, was in the Garden of Gethsemane, came out to find that his disciples uh, were not waiting with him in the place of prayer. And so we find here that God is going to deal with his servant Jacob. And I want us just to look at Jacob's 
relationship here with his brother. And we're going to see the way that God begins, uh, uh, or well, continues really, to work in the life of his servant. And first of all, I want you to see Jacob's encounter with his brother. If you look at verse 1 of the portion of Scripture, it says, And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau came. Now there's the start of the trial on this particular trial. It wasn't the start of trials in Jacob's life, but it's the start of this particular trial. This brother is coming with 400 men. And he's coming with an army. You'll remember how that uh, Esau had said that when his father died, when we bury our father, really what Esau was saying, I'm going to bury you. You remember the whole dispute about the blessing that Esau thought Jacob had stolen from him and he was absolutely mad. Jacob knows all of this and you'll find here that now he is afraid, he is frightened, as Esau is coming to meet with him. And you'll notice now the brothers meet. And you'll see, first of all, that there's a cautious Jacob. You'll see that he divides the family, uh, and he's going to meet Esau, and he is taking the precaution that if one group of the family is going to be slain by Esau, that the other groups are divided one from the other so that not all of the family are going to be slain. And we said the last time that this was something that uh, was wise of Jacob, that he was dividing the family up and that uh, not all of them were going to be slain if there was going to be an attack. And we said that, yes, Jacob had brought the matter to the Lord in prayer, but there was also wisdom in looking after the family in uh, protecting his family. Indeed, it was his duty to protect his family. And so we see cautious Jacob here, and he wants to protect the family. But also I want you to see courageous Jacob. Look at verse 3. It says, He passed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. So while he has divided up the family... And he's put uh, his most loved ones hindermost. He goes first. He's the first one to meet Esau. He doesn't take the coward's place. He doesn't come up on the rearward. He doesn't cower. He goes first in to meet his brother. So there's a courage there. And you know, God's people ought to be a people of courage. We don't cower when we face the enemy. We don't uh, cower when we face those that are coming against us. We are those that are not weak, weak or fearful, but the men who are greatest in faith are those who are the strongest. And you look at the uh, Hebrews 11 and the great uh, gallery of the heroes of the faith, and they were men of courage. They're not going to cower. They're not going to flee in the midst of the battle. And it's the same with you and me. We've got to be people of courage. There is a battle. There is a strong man that we need to fight. But we need to be those who are courageous in the Bible, in the battle. Stand fast. Quit you like men. Be strong. And we need not to flee. No matter what they do, no matter how the enemy comes, 
no matter what threats they make, we need to be desirous to be strong in the battle today. Not only is there a, uh, uh, here a cautious Jacob and a courageous Jacob, but I want you to see there's a conspiring Jacob. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau came, and with him 400 men. And he divided the children unto Leah and unto Rachel and unto the two handmaids. And he put the handmaids and their children foremost, and Leah and her children after, and Rachel and Joseph hindermost. So he he put the um, part of the family that he felt was most expendable uh, nearest to the danger. Now, while we say that this is wise, he is trying to protect his family. We can see what the reason is that he's doing this. But again, Jacob is showing uh, his favoritism here. He is really showing uh, what part of the family that he loves most. And while he is wise, there's still a certain amount of scheming in what he is doing. Now, he has brought the matter to the Lord in prayer. We saw last time that God had revealed to him the Lord's host, the mighty angels that were there to help him and to be with him. But still, while Jacob has prayed, while he knows that God is on his side, while he knows that God will protect him, there is still a little lingering of the sin that has beset him. Now, how we identify with that, I'm sure that each one of us can identify with that. You know, there are, we, we grow in grace. We learn that God is able to help us. We have brought things to the Lord in prayer in times gone by, and we've seen God answer our prayers in a mighty way. And yet when we get into the situation of danger, sometimes we still resort to the old disbelief to the fact that we wonder whether we're going to get out of this situation or whether we're going to be brought through in the end of the day. And while we know that God is strong and mighty, there is still that little bit of disbelief. And it's the same with Jacob here. We find a conspiring Jacob. He's still not fully trusting in the Lord. He is trusting God but not as he should. But then I want you to see a contrite Jacob. Look again at verse 3. It says, He passed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came to his brother. Bowing yourself to the ground uh, seven times was a, a sign of respect. It would have been a sign of respect actually reserved for a king in those days. So, Really, we have a groveling Jacob here. Why? Because he's still afraid. He's still afraid. And though he has seen God's power, he knows that God is strong, he is still afraid. He didn't need to be afraid. He didn't need to waste his time groveling in the dust because uh, God had already quieted Esau. God had already answered his prayer. We'll come to that in a wee minute. God had wrestled with him. And he had seen that God had prevailed. And surely he had learned his lesson that God was strong. But how soon he forgot 
the power of God, the God that had wrestled with him, the God with whom he could not prevail, and yet here he is, and he knows that God is able to give him victory, but he's still not trusting in his God. And here is God working on his servant here in the midst of all of this. So we see uh, here something of God or Jacob's encounter with his brother. But then I want you to see Jacob's embrace of his brother. Look at verse 4. It says, And Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. So here's the answer to prayer. God had quieted Esau. And if we don't see the answer to prayer here, then we have missed the point. God keeps his promises. God is able to do exceeding abundantly. Even though Esau had promised and had threatened to kill his brother, now as soon as he comes to meet him, God put it in his heart to embrace his brother and to weep. And here he is, glad to see his brother. The old animosities were washed away. God had answered prayer. But you know, as we look at Esau here and his forgiving spirit, and you can see the way that he is glad to meet his brother and all the rest of it, we might say, what a fine person Esau is. Now, you'll see the way that he comes with a force of 400 men. Esau is a violent man. You can see that in his character. You can, that's why he has 400 men at his disposal. But as he appears here, he comes, he's forgiving of his brother. He seems to be generous. He seems to be likable. He seems to be noble. And when you look at Jacob, and you can see the way that he's still scheming, even though God has been dealing with his servant, uh, you might say to yourself, which is the child of God? You may think to yourself, which is the better man? And you know, that has been a problem for many people down through the years. Robert Laidlaw was a successful New Zealand businessman. And he wrote a book called The Reason Why. And in it tells, he tells us that this was his problem. He said, and I quote, I know a polished, cultivated gentleman who's not a Christian. And he says, and I know a rather crude, uncultured man who is a Christian. He said, do you mean to tell me that God prefers the uncultured man simply because he's accepted and acknowledged Christ as a savior? And he says that was his problem. And maybe it's a problem that you have. There are many lovely people out there and they're not saved. There are many wonderful people out there, kind people out there, and they're not saved. And then maybe also you know a person who professes to be saved and they would hardly give you the itch if they had it. They would hardly give you the time of day. They would not greet you if they met you on the street. And you say, where there's a wonderful, kind, polished individual. And here's an individual and, well, they need a lot of work. And you say, well, God uh, is going to save that uncultured, that unkind person, but they're not going to save this kind person that's over here. What's all that about? But I want you to see the difference between Jacob and Esau. 
Jacob had life. Esau was dead. It's the same difference between a polished diamond and a cabbage. You have the polished diamond and it gleams in the light and it looks wonderful. The cabbage maybe is uh, wonderful if you're hungry, but it doesn't look the best when it's in the ground. The difference between the polished diamond and the cabbage is that the cabbage has life. It's a living thing. And that's the difference between Jacob and Esau. And you know, you might see many people and they profess to be saved and they're not all that they should be, but they have life. They have life. They have life and more abundantly. They have come to the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And they're not trusting in themselves. And they're not trusting in what they have done. They're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, many even of God's people might wonder to themselves, well, am I saved? Am I washed in the precious blood of the Lamb? I'm not as good as that person or the other person. But if you have life, if Christ is the is the savior of your life, then you have life and you're not depending on yourself and you're not depending on what you've done or what you are. You're depending on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the wonderful assurance that we have. And here is Esau, he's forgiving, he's magnanimous, but here is a man who is dead in trespasses and in sins. The Bible does say to God's people, be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. But here was uh, the Jacob's embrace by his brother. And we see that as they meet one with another, there is this difference between them. But then I want you to see Jacob's exchange with his brother. Notice the question that Esau asked in verse 8. It says, He said, What meanest thou by all this drove which I met? And, it's, and Jacob said, These are to find grace in the sight of my Lord. And really what Jacob is saying here is that years ago I cheated you. Years ago... I did you wrong, but here is restitution. You'll notice that Jacob even uses the word blessing there. You'll see that he, he, he says that um, he, he speaks of uh, giving Esau a blessing. Look at verse 11. Take, I pray thee, my blessing that is brought to thee because God hath dealt graciously with me. And you know, here is this man and he comes and we see this exchange with his brother but you notice what Esau says in verse 9 he says uh, it says that Esau said I have enough my brother keep that thou hast unto thyself now here's another commendable thing we see in Esau you know many people in this world are discontent many people in this world can never say I've enough can never say I have enough. But here's an ungodly man, and as far as the things of the world were concerned, he was able to say, I have enough. You know, as we look at ourselves and our conditions, are we a content people? Are we content? 
Paul was able to say that he, in whatsoever state I am, I have learned in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. And I wonder, are we content today? Are we always looking for more? Are we always seeking after this world's goods and the things of this world? The Bible says that godliness with contentment is great gain. And if you can learn the secret of contentment, contentment in Christ, you have learned a wonderful lesson. You have learned a valuable thing in your life. What a mighty privilege it is to have eternal life. What a mighty privilege it is that we have the Savior. I remember reading about a, a woman, uh, an old Scottish lady, and all that she had to eat was a crust of bread and uh, to drink all that she had was a cup of water. But as she lifted her crust of bread and little uh, cup of water, she said, all this and Christ too. All this and Christ too. That's not the attitude of the modern age. That's not the attitude of this day and age. But it ought to be the attitude of God's people. And I want you to see that Jacob or Esau refused what Jacob was going to give him. But when he saw that the refusal bothered his brother, then he was willing to take it. In those days, it was a bond of friendship or a signal of friendship that you receive the present from the one that is given. And he, we read in verse 11, notice what Jacob said now. He said, Take, I pray thee, my blessing that is brought to thee, because God hath dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Now Jacob is able to say, I have enough. And he acknowledges here that not only does he have enough, but you'll notice God had dealt graciously with me. Esau didn't say that. Esau said something commendable, I have enough. But Jacob says, God hath graciously given me what I have, and I have enough. And you see the difference between the two. One acknowledges God. One has the wonderful blessing of being content. But Jacob has the wonderful blessing of being content in Christ, being content in God. And that's a safer foundation. You know, if, if we're just content, there may be a trial that comes along our way and blows us off and knocks us down and makes us depressed. But if we're content in God, we have a firm foundation. We're never going to be knocked down. We're never going to be put off. And we see here the uh, exchange with his brother, Jacob's exchange with his brother. But look now at Jacob's excuse to his brother. Notice what Esau said to Jacob in verse 12. And he said, let us take our journey and let us go. I will go before thee. So Esau now is suggesting that Jacob would accompany him home and that they'd have a great feast and that Jacob would be under Esau's protection. And we find that there is this wonderful offer and uh, we find that many of the commentators would say that Jacob avoided Esau's suggestion because of an unequal yoke, that there would have been an unequal yoke between Esau and his brother. I, I'm, I'm not sure whether that is the reason, and certainly it doesn't say that that is the reason. 
If it was the reason, it's a commendable thing that uh, Jacob didn't want the unequal yoke. But I want you to see what Jacob said to Esau. Let my Lord, I pray thee, pass over before his servant until I come unto my Lord, unto Seir. So Jacob was suggesting now that he would go to Esau's home, that he would go with his brother to stay with Esau. But I don't think that Esau, or rather Jacob, had any intention of going. You'll notice what he does when he says, I'm I'm not going to go now with you. Um, Esau says, well, I'll give some of my men here and they will help you, conduct you over to uh, Seir, to my place. And then Esau, or Jacob rather, says, well, I don't need all of your men. What what has prevented me to come on my own? And you can see that Jacob is still scheming. He's still scheming. He doesn't want to go with Esau. He's still a little bit afraid of Esau. And so he said, I, 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 yes, I'll go with you, but I'll go on my own time, and I'll go in my own strength. That's what he's saying to Esau. Really what he's doing is telling lies. Telling lies. And he's a good motive, but just never uh, right to do wrong, to do right. You can't do it that way. He is lying. You can see almost immediately, as soon as Esau goes, uh, Jacob turns his back and goes the other way. And that's always been his intention. He's saying to Esau, oh, I'm coming with you. I'll be with you. We'll be along uh, in, in, in a little while. But as soon as Esau leaves, he turns his back and he goes the opposite direction. That's lying. That's scheming. The old scheming. Jacob is not dead. And he's still at it. And again, you can see the way that sin keeps coming up. It's the same sin. There's a besetting sin. There's probably a besetting sin in your life. There's something that needs to be dealt with in your life. But one more thing I want you to see. And that's Jacob's establishment after his brother. Look at uh, when Jacob left Esau. Look at what it says. Uh, It says, uh, and Jacob, verse 17, journeyed to Succoth and built him a house and made booze for his cattle. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. Now, I want you to see something very significant here. It says that when Jacob went He's turned around. He's had to go back over the Brook Jacobit book again. He's going in the wrong direction. God is saying, go to Bethel. You remember how the God had said, I'll bring you again to Bethel. And God wanted him to go to Canaan, to Bethel. Now, what does Jacob do? After he's told his lie, he turns around and he goes back towards Haran. And he goes to Succoth. And what does he do in Succoth? He builds a house. Now, do you remember what is said about the uh, prophet or about uh, the patriarch Abram? That he dwelt in tents all his life because he wanted to show that here he hath no continuing city, but he sought one to come. Now, here is Jacob. And instead of going all the way, there is now something of a uh, turning back. There is uh, something of a departure from what God wants him to do. And he builds a house in Succoth. 
And he begins to settle halfway. Halfway. Remember, Abram had done that when Haran, he'd stayed there halfway, gone halfway with God and felt that was enough. Maybe you've gone halfway with God and you feel, well, I've done rightly, done my best. I've gone halfway. I know where God wants me to be and I've got along the way, but I haven't got there altogether, but I've done enough. I've done as much as many another one. I've done enough. And you begin to settle halfway house. Not where God wants you to be, not in the very center of the will of God, halfway house. And then, not only does he go to uh, uh, Succoth, but he goes to Shechem. And it says that Shechem there, he says in verse 18 to 20, and uh, Jacob came to Shalem, a city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Paddan Aram, and pitched his tent before the city, and he bought a parcel of a field, and erected there an altar. Now, here he is erecting an altar, but he's no nearer, well, he is actually nearer Bethel this time. He is a little bit nearer Bethel. It's nearer, uh, Shechem is nearer to Bethel than Succoth was, but it wasn't Bethel. And here he is, and he's gone a little bit towards the will of God again in his life. He's I don't, we don't know how long he dwelt in Succoth. It seems to have been years. But now he feels, well, uh, this is not just all that I need to be. And he goes a little bit further, and then he pitches his tent towards the city of Shechem. Shechem was near Bethel, but it wasn't Bethel. You know, if you want God's blessing, what you need is full obedience. One of the devil's greatest ruses is to have the believer uh, just pitch his tent in the sight of the world. We think of Shechem here. It was a Canaanite city. And there, in the city of Shechem, Dinah, Jacob's daughter, is drawn in. She is morally defiled in Shechem. And we think of the great loss it was. And then when uh, Jacob's sons hear of what had happened to Dinah, their, their sister, they went in and they committed murder in Shechem. So it doesn't do them any good. And we learn the lesson that when you picture a tent halfway, and when you are content with a halfway house, it'll end up in disaster. It'll end up in disaster for your family. It'll end up in disaster for uh, all of your house. And here he is, and he's established himself first in Succoth, and then in Shechem. Shechem's a little bit nearer, but it's still not Bethel. It's not where God wants him to be, and he suffers. His family suffers. Be sure your sin will find you out. And here is God, and he's dealing with a servant. He has dealt with him in Peniel. Yes, God has made Jacob better. Jacob learns something at Bethel. Jacob becomes a man of prayer after or Peniel. Uh, Jacob becomes a man of prayer after Peniel. But God is still working on his servant. And God is still working on you and me. There are many lessons that we need to learn day by day. And maybe I am speaking to you and you have pitched your tent. You've turned your back. You've pitched your tent in Succoth. 
Maybe you have got discontent with that and you've pitched your tent in Shechem. You're a little bit nearer to where God wants you to be, but you're still not there. God wants us to be a perfect people. He wants us, and we're not going to be perfect in this life, but he wants to perfect us. He wants us to be, as what we said, as the shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. Oh, here is old Jacob. And isn't it wonderful we see these lessons? You know, if we hadn't uh, God describing his heroes the way that he does, you know we'd be in despair because in many ways we feel God day by day. And yet here were these great heroes of the faith, and they do the same thing. They're doing the same thing. That doesn't make an excuse. doesn't make it any better for us. But nevertheless, God shows us the way that he is working in the life of Jacob, and he's working in your life and mine too, if we're saved by the grace of God. And he is perfecting us. He is helping us. And we need to be learning, and we need to be more obedient, and we'll never have real blessing and happiness until we come to the place where we're right in the very center of where God wants us to be. Oh, get to that place, child of God, and be a servant of God with a full heart. May God write his message upon our hearts for his name's sake. Let's just bow in a word of prayer. Our loving God and our gracious Father in heaven, we do thank thee for thy precious word afresh. We thank thee for these lessons from the life of Jacob and Esau here. And we do thank thee that thou dost perfect us. And we thank thee that we're still uh, a job in hand. We're still a project that needs to be perfected. And so our God, we'd ask thee that thou wouldst continue to work and bless our souls today. For it's in Jesus' precious name that we'd ask these things. Amen. Amen. Can we turn to the hymn 343 in closing? The hymn 343. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Uh, we'll sing the first and the last verses of the hymn and we'll stand as we sing.
loving God and our gracious Father, we pray that thou wast indeed lead us onward, lead us homeward to our glorious rest above. Part us in thy fear and blessing now. Be with us throughout this day and meet with us as we gather around thy word in the evening time in thy will. For it's in Jesus' precious name that we'd ask these things. Amen.